From Vosvitek comes a weekly digital series that shares its insights, concepts, and findings from years of learning and mentorship. Welcome to Vosvitek Podcast. Hello, you. Welcome to my series. I'm very, very excited about this episode because today I am interviewing Erin Lowry. She is better known as Broke Millennial, which is in fact the name of her first book. See, when I saw this title, I was just completely drawn in because it's such a brilliant title, right? And you know, at that time, so so let me backtrack. I discovered the book in the summer of 2018. And at, at around that time, I'd been studying finances and really wanting to work on my finances and how to become better with my money and so forth. And, you know, at that point, I thought I read enough. I read Tony Robbins' Money Master the Game and books such as that. But then I saw her book and what I appreciate about it as I went through it and read it was that it was very geared towards, as the name implies, millennials. It was geared towards someone of my my thinking. Um, Erin, by the way, is also uh, kind of has a creative background herself, so she understands the artistic journey, if you will. And I, there, there's just so much to her, and she has this ability to take what is otherwise complex and really break it down very simplistically, uh, all the way from credit card debt and how to save money and, and, and various things. So I was just completely blown away by her book that, you know, this was actually before I began the podcast. And then when I, when the, the podcast kind of got going, I was like, I have to interview Aaron. I, I, I really, you know, Broke Millennial is definitely on my list of people that I want to interview. And so I got in contact with her and she said, you know, I'd love to, but can we do it in anticipation of my second book? Which blew my mind because I didn't realize uh, she was working on a second book. Uh, but she was, and I was very honored by that. I said, of course, you know, I, I'd be more than happy to. And the the second book, uh, at the time of this recording, it comes out, um, comes out in about a week, so April 9th of 2019. So and it's called Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. So I highly, highly encourage you to do that. In the in the first one, she talks about kind of as I mentioned, the fundamentals. This is now advanced level type stuff. This is one you now you're putting your money to use, if you will. And so, yeah, I can't say enough good things about Erin. She has an amazing blog in addition to her first book, which was a success. And I I know that this book is also going to be a huge success as well. But the the blog is called BrokeMillennial.com. I know I'm singing Erin's praises through the roof, but that's because it's absolutely warranted. She deserves all the credit I'm giving her. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the interview. So thanks for being a part of the show. It's great to have you. Thanks um, for having me. Of course. So uh, I love helping creatives, and I find creatives in particular are notoriously terrible with money. And so that's why, in, you know, um, I, I appreciate you doing this because I think we can teach a lot of people how to, how to be better with finances. Now, one of the things I notice, especially with creatives, there's a psychological aversion towards finances, um, and from your own experience, especially with millennials, what, what is the psychological version and how do we shift that so that way we can start looking at tactics? First of all, everyone, no matter your job title, has their own emotional money baggage. So I think that's the first thing to know. We all have our blueprints. 
often inherited from how we grew up, not blaming anyone's parents. I think your parents always did the best they could with the information they had at the time. But how you learned about money growing up really impacts how you handle it day to day. But when we look specifically at creatives, I would venture to guess that a big part of the problem, too, is this kind of mythos of the starving artist Mm -hmm. and this idea that you can only really be creative and you can only really be true to yourself and your art when you're in that phase, which I think is a very dangerous mythos to have. And I think we need to bust that up. But part of the problem, too, is there's this rhetoric around selling out when you make a certain amount of money or when you level up to a certain phase in your career or that you're no longer in touch And money just changes a lot of things for people. So there's a lot of reasons why people feel the way they do about money. I would encourage you to kind of bifurcate any emotional reaction that's a product of what people have told you about being an artist or being a creative and focus more on why you feel the way you do about money. In my first book, Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together, I spend a lot of the early chapters focusing specifically on your emotional relationship to money and kind of what that means and also how that can give you some insight about how to, I like to say, protect yourself from yourself because Mm -hmm. you might need to set up certain barriers in order to not be constantly moving money out of savings into checking or make sure that you start investing or whatever it is that you need to do to level up to that next phase. Absolutely. And I have to applaud you with both books. There's the tactics, but there's also you put yourself into it emotionally, you know, and and so you kind of humanize the process, if you will. So I just wanted to point that out and highlight that. Um, So is it is it difficult to kind of put yourself out there rather than just present the tactics? I would say no. I like to be a storyteller. So we talk about creatives and That's my background too. I studied journalism and theater. I was never a finance focused person. I hated math all the way through school. I just did always find money interesting and I liked money. And a big reason was I grew up in a household where we talked about it all the time, but in very positive ways. So I grew up with a pretty positive relationship. And even my first year living in New York City, I was working in entertainment. I was earning $23,000 a year, which anyone that's even visited New York knows that's not much to live on. But I still felt very much in control. And to me, I learn best when it's narrative storytelling type of learning. And when I started writing about money, I thought, well, I think I can kind of trick people into figuring out how to handle their money if I just share some of my own stories. And that's sort of just how it all happened. One of one of the with this book in particular, you kind of highlight the importance of like, okay, I'm not a financial expert, but here's why you should listen to me. Can you just summarize those I I don't know, qualifications, I guess. Sure. Well, especially for the second book, which I can hold up here, Broke Millennial (laughs) Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. I'm not an investing expert. And I also think it's hard. I'm 29. I'll be 30 in May. It's kind of hard to say you're an expert expert at that tender age. And that is never to discount somebody's experience. But just to say millennials specifically after 2008, as investors have really only experienced a great bull run in the market, a couple market corrections here and there, but we haven't really gone through the ups and downs quite like people who are a bit older than us. And to me, it was really important to talk to those people when writing this book. And I also interviewed a lot of experts between CFPs and people that work at brokerage firms and robo-advisors and investing apps. I like to position myself as a translator when it comes to this book. I, of course, do my own investing. I kind of the DIY approach when it comes to investing. So I do talk about that. 
but my solo experience cannot just be replicated for absolutely everyone. So I needed to have more voices and the expertise from really certified experts. One of the reasons I do like to say, like, hey, this is why you should listen to me, is I do have a first book out that did well and again, similar style where I talked to a lot of very smart people. And I have, and I disclose in the book very early on, I have worked with financial companies. I've been writing about personal finance for seven, well, almost seven years. So part of the way I make money is through those sort of partnerships, which means I have access to people who are very high up at a lot of these companies that otherwise I might not have had access to and I could get them to go on the record. And I do think it's just important to disclose that information so people don't feel like I'm trying to pull one over on them at any point. Yeah. Um I'm going to paraphrase, but one of your kind of ideas is uh, you can't save your way to retirement. You invest your way to retirement. And I think we get fed a lot of these sort of things like, one, one, you know, high risk, high reward type of thing. And that's not necessarily the case when you break it down. So, you know, we, when you mentioned like parents passing on misinformation, I think it's, you know, generational, like they got past that and then therefore they're passing it on to you. So what are some of the common misconceptions about investing in particular? Well, I love that you brought that one up because I joke that I'm on a campaign to change the language that we use around retirement because we do say save for retirement. And I say it all the time, too, because that's just the common vernacular. But really, we need to say invest for retirement because that's what you're doing. If you have a 401k, a 403b, an IRA, whatever it is that you've opened up and you're contributing to, assuming it's not sitting in cash, which if it is, you need to go change that today, right now, after you watch this. You're investing. Your money is in the market and it's growing and compounding and you're an investor. Words have power. And if we say investing for retirement, hopefully that starts to reposition people who feel like, oh, I'm not investing. I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable enough. I'm not rich enough. Whatever your little inner critic is telling you, because we've all been there, you are, you can start and you probably already have started. And that's a conversation I have with people all the time where they say, oh, I'm not investing. And I counter with, do you have a 401k? Yes, I do. Well, you're an investor. So I, I do really want to reframe that for folks and just kind of recognize that, yeah, you can invest and it's actually pretty easy to get started and get into the market. Yeah. Speaking of that, you very early on, you highlight when to get into the market because you're the first person I've seen at, at other books that I've read. It's like invest now, invest now. But for millennials, they have to account for debt. And so you're the first person to really look at it through that lens because if you have a you know 25% interest but you're only making 7% in the market pay off the debt first then get into it so can you talk about that and like how you yeah. came to want to add that because i again i've never seen it before well and it makes sense why people default to the recommendation of just start as early as you can because the advice being time is one of the best assets you can have as an investor so the earlier you get started the better the longer your money has to be compounding all very valid advice which everything i say is with a caveat of if you have an employer match on a retirement plan please go take it like that's free money sitting on the table go put that three percent four percent whatever it is into the market but if you're thinking about investing in a taxable account, which is the non-retirement investing, I like to call it putting on your financial oxygen mask. You have to have checked off certain things in order to be able to do that. And one of the experts that I interviewed in the book, he phrases it as earn the right to invest, which I think is a really clever thing too. Awesome. Number one is you have to set your goals. Why are you investing and or saving? What do you want to achieve in the short, medium, and long term? So we're talking one to three or five years 
five to 15, 20 year range, and then 20 and beyond kind of being more of your long term. And having this idea of how can investing help me get there? Now, if it's short term goals, don't be investing that money. Don't put risk on that money. If you know like, hey, I need access to this in the next one, two, even maybe three years, I don't think it's worth the risk. Put it in a savings account. Mm-hmm. Make sure that that savings account is earning more than 0.01%. But that is a whole other rabbit hole we can go down <laughs> later if you'd like. Yes, you talk about it in your first book. So yeah, check all that about out. picking better financial products. The other thing, too, that I really want you to be thinking about is do you have an emergency fund? Preferably, if you're going to be starting to invest in taxable accounts, that emergency savings needs to be at least three months of basic living expenses. And I like to reiterate that idea of basic living expenses. People get very overwhelmed about emergency funds. And if you pare it down to not your current lifestyle, but the lifestyle at which you're just paying all of your bills, your your basic needs are met. That's the amount of money that you need in the emergency fund. And if you kind of cut out all the extra stuff and every extra from like buying a latte to going to the movies to going out to dinner to hitting happy hour, all of that gets cut out. What is just the basic number you need? Lights are on, rent or mortgage is paid, gas in the car, paying your student loan debt, anything else. That's your number. Mm-hmm. So three months of that number, six if you have a lower risk tolerance. Six is also just a great goal, but I think three is more attainable to get you started. I want you to also already be investing in retirement, as I mentioned before, and you need to start educating yourself. That's a really big thing before you get started because you have to know the language. A lot of it can feel really overwhelming at first simply because the language that gets used around investing, my tinfoil conspiracy hat, I feel like they're deliberately (laughs) trying to confuse us and make it difficult. But investing does have its own language. And it's really no different than learning how to do certain math problems. You have to understand what certain terms are in order to be able to do them correctly. So you are just perfectly equipped, no matter where you are in life, to learn this language and learn the terminology. And it, some of it is ridiculously overcomplicated, in my opinion, but usually those are not the terms and concepts you really need to know in order to get started as an investor either. So don't stress if the first thing you come across is something like, tax loss harvesting. That's okay. That's not a biggie that you need to know in order to get started. You need to know more diversification, asset allocation, time horizon, risk tolerance. Those are the bigger terms for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, I kind of have two ways I can go um, and you can decide which way you want to go. Um, you mentioned the the three months, right? And I feel like a lot of people, and at least for me, when, the experience when I read your first book, I was like, I'm behind the eight ball. <laughs> And while I was hopeful that like now I have the tactics, I was like, okay, how do I, you know, it's, it's about patience, right? Um, so I guess the question there would be like, how do you get there? Um, but then conversely, uh, if you want to go down this route, um, the idea, well, you know what, go down that route because I forgot the second question. <laughs> so first, this idea of I feel very overwhelmed, how do I get there? Which. Yeah. I think the most important thing to recognize is so many people feel that way. You are not isolated in that feeling. And my hope, especially with how I wrote the first book, is each chapter does stand on its own. And it deliberately was meant to be that way so that as you grew and things changed, you could go back and hit the next step. All the content's in there for all in one go because I wrote a book. And that's just how you have to put everything together. But it's not meant to be something that you can achieve it all immediately. You have to focus on what is the most, this is a kind of bad way to say it, but what's the biggest imminent threat to your financial life? What do you need to figure out how to deal with first? 
For some people that might be, how do I get rid of this overwhelming amount of credit card debt I have gotten myself into? And if you're doing that, I always encourage that you figure out the psychological side of how did that happen? Is it because there was a medical issue and it's just a one-time thing? Or is this a reoccurring cycle that you're in and why are you in it? Everything with money comes back to emotion and psychology. And I think that sometimes even people who are giving the advice forget to include that in part of it. You have to be doing some of the hard mental work while you're also learning about your finances. Now, for other people, it might be like, hey, I made some mistakes in my early 20s and just wrecked my credit score. How can I rehabilitate this thing? So figure out what is just your first goal, your first step, and start doing, I like to call them micro goals, start doing small things that are in service of the overall goal. Because if you, for instance, with savings goals, it's one of my favorite recommendations, because if you say to yourself, I want to save $10,000, well, that's kind of specific. You have an amount. But if you say, I want to say $10,000 in four years, now you've got a time limit on it, and then you can niche it down to every year I need to save $2,500, which can be further broken down to how much money I need to save every month, even down to like, well, if I forego this XYZ indulgence today, that gets me this much closer. Yeah. I think it's also very important to be identifying your values. Money really does help us push towards what we value. It also can illuminate what we actually value compared to what we think we value, depending on how you spend. But oftentimes, if you are able to really prioritize spending in alignment with what you truly value, then not always, but a lot of the times, it's going to make you feel like you have enough because you're able to focus on the things that bring you the most joy, the most satisfaction. Obviously, sometimes we have to pay for things that we don't necessarily value, but that are required for us to live our lives. And I I think a lot of... I, I. For me, a lot of these problems stem from budgeting because I, I know so many people don't want to look at a budget because A, they feel it's restrictive, and B, as you mentioned, once they start to figure out where their money is going, like I, I could on paper say, you know, I value charity and X, Y, and Z, but if I'm spending all my money uh, on going to the bar and hanging out with my friends, well, then I really find out like money talks, right? And in this sense, those are my values versus what I say. And so, I don't know, how do, you, how do you kind of break that pattern and make someone look at a budget and actually budget things for themselves? Oh, it's hard because that term, the B word, people <laughs> hate it. And I get it. I mean, I don't love the idea of a budget. But at the same time, I think it's important to reframe this idea of it's restrictive and think that it helps me achieve my goals. Because without a budget, and I'm right now going to rebrand that for you to cash flow. Without knowing exactly how much money is coming in and how much money is going out every month, without knowing your numbers, you cannot make any financial decisions. You cannot aggressively pay down debt. You cannot save for you know the trip that you want to take or the purchase that you want to make. You have to know the, that those numbers and that information, which also coming back to the creatives idea, oftentimes self-employed, I'm self-employed too. So that number can change month to month, which can be very stressful. So learning how to budget within a variable income is kind of its own beast, which I've done videos about and I've written about in the book too, because it's important. And a lot of millennials, that's also our experience. But I digress. I think it's just really important to reframe a budget in your mind to this is the tool that is going to help me control my money. And my mantra is you have two options when it comes to your money. Either you control money or money controls you. My goal is just to make sure that you control your money. And you don't have to have a lot of it to feel in control. Now, with the budget, one of the things I like to recommend people start with, 
For two weeks, challenge yourself to every single day, write down what you purchased, specifically what the item was, and then how much you spent. And that what the item was thing is really critical because you can then go back and look at the history of your purchases and kind of run an audit. Why did I buy this? Do I really value this? I keep making this one habitual mindless purchase. And I'm not attacking anybody's lattes. Like I buy coffee almost every day. That's not what this is about. If you value that, that is fine. But there might be something else that's kind of a routine mindless thing that you're like, ah, it doesn't really bring me any benefit. Let's cut it out. That's really an important thing to do. But the other thing to know about budgets is they evolve, they change as you change. The style that I used when I was 22, 23 is not remotely similar to the one that I use now. I make more money now. I'm married now. Life has changed. So there's, it's okay for budgets to grow and expand and change with you. But I still have some form of a budget because I know exactly how much is coming in and how much is going out and how much I have to spend in the month. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you this, like as far as cash flow, there's also so many fees that we don't know about, right? We sign up for this one thing and it ends up being like a three month trial, but then we never, we want to cancel it, but we don't. Um, I don't know. Do, do, do you do a lot of people fall into those pitfalls where they're just, they don't even know how much they're spending on ancillary fees? Um, Leaking money? Yeah. Is that the I term? have. Yeah. I mean, everyone falls victim to that at some point because you totally forget that you sign up for something. One Now, my general practice is anytime that I sign up for a service, I have an alert that's Mm -hmm. like, hey, cancel me if I want to cancel it. I also, and this is an easy tweak to make, I have alerts on every single one of my credit cards. It's actually more of a security feature for me, but it's a good reminder for things like reoccurring charges that I kind of forgot I signed up for. Every single time one of my credit cards gets charged, I get a text message that says how much it got charged and what it was for. So that way, if I'm out and about and it's like, hey, that one week free trial of Showtime that you signed up for to watch billions in a week that you forgot to unsubscribe from just charged you. So then I'm like, all right, well, I'll go and unsubscribe now. So next month it doesn't charge me. Yeah. That's a kind of easy way to tweak it. It's also important to check your credit card statements and or debit card statements when it could be errors. It's not unknown to happen. It could be as simple as a restaurant might have charged you twice for a meal, or it could be that there are little things that you signed up for that you keep getting charged for. Annual subscriptions are another big one for getting about those. And a really easy way to solve for that is write down all of the annual subscriptions that you have and not saying to cancel them, just total it all up. Like for instance, I pay for like Amazon Prime and Microsoft Word and stuff like that on an annual payment. So I have a tally of the grand total of all those things. And then I divide it by 12. And every month, I put that monthly sum into a checking account that I use to pay my bills so that any time an annual fee comes up, I have some money set aside for it. So it's not a budget buster. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Getting kind of back on the side of investing, um, one of the terms like, I want to talk about like investing in yourself, right? This kind of ties into values, but also investing. And so when when you hear that phrase, like invest in yourself, what does that mean to you? And how would you encourage people to do it in a proper way? To me, a big part of it is continuing to build your skill set. And I think that as we get out of the traditional education system, it can be really easy to kind of stop learning for honestly, back of a lack of a better term. And I think it's really important to always be investing in your education. And that can be the books you're consuming, the TV that you're watching, 
there's so many online classes that you can take, podcasts you can listen to, shows you can watch. So finding things that, listen, I am not above binge watching The Real Housewives. Like, obviously, you can have your indulgences. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you're also consuming content that betters your mind and betters your knowledge. It's also just a smart move to keep expanding your skill sets, especially if you're a creative, so that you have more to offer as a creative and so that you make sure you stay competitive in whatever field that you're in, no matter your job. You want to always be learning and expanding because it can be really easy to get phased out if you let your skills atrophy or you only are specialized in one thing. So that's kind of a way to recession-proof your life. And I think another one is looking at starting your own business if that's something that you want to do. And that's certainly a way to invest in yourself. But you also want to set limitations on that. And it's not that you want to have a limiting mindset, but you want to make sure that financially you are not spending too much, going too far. Sometimes I think it also is helpful to say like, hey, I have three years to do this. If it's not happening in three years, I need to either pivot or I need to figure out another way to also make money. The reason I recommend that is because sometimes entrepreneurship gets positioned as like, well, if you just keep pushing, if you just put a little bit more in, you can get there. You know what? Sometimes you can't. Yeah. And I, I hate to position it that way, but I mean, I have failed at things. You can't, you will not succeed at everything and some people will fail. But because of this ideology of like, if you just keep trying a little harder, if you just wait a little longer, people put themselves in horrible financial positions thinking that that's what they need to do to succeed. But sometimes success is also walking away from something that just doesn't make the most sense for you, your mental health, your financial health, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a story that I heard about Richard Branson when, when he first started like uh, the Virgin Airlines, that he had a one-year deal with the airplane company that he got his planes, and then if it didn't succeed, he'd just be able to return the planes. So I think people, you know, I think it's one thing to throw, like, don't throw caution against the wind, but minimize your downside even while putting in money. So I think that's, that's important. It is. And I think another great thing is if you have the opportunity to be working a traditional job or having some sort of regular paycheck, test your idea on the side of that. Have some sort of coverage day to day financially and be testing to see if you have a viable product on the side or a viable idea. You can be building it up. You can be building runway. All the revenue from it can just be getting reinvested because you have another way to be covering your day to day needs, your month to month and your savings. So that's a great way to get started so that when you do quit your job and go full time into something else, you've already established it. And it's not just leaping into the unknown. Absolutely. So in the book, you mentioned health savings account. I've never heard that term. And I know you ex- explain in the book, but uh, just for my own curiosity, like, can you expand upon that? What, what is that? So if people are familiar with an FSA, which is a flexible spending account, that is a workplace benefit that often gets offered as a way for you to put money aside pre-tax, so it lowers your, lowers your taxable income, and they send you this little debit card looking thing that when you go to the doctor, when you buy prescription medication, whatever it is, you buy a pair of glasses, you can use that. So you're paying for your medical expenses with pre-tax dollars, which just overall helps lower your income and it's kind of a win all around. Now, the bummer with the flexible spending account is that at the end of the year, if you haven't used up all the money in it, which technically the end of the year tends to roll over to rate before tax return season. But if you haven't used it, it's a user or lose it policy. Anything that's left over in your account will go back to your employer. 
So you want to make sure you use it all. Now, an HSA, which is a health savings account, operates in a pretty similar way, except what's happening with this one. You put your money in pre-tax and you actually can be putting it into investments. So it's actually growing and compounding. And you also don't have to use it at the end of the year. In fact, you can let that sucker sit there until you retire. And then you can have amassed all of this money into a health savings account that you can then use to pay for medical expenses in retirement. Or for people who want to start a family, sometimes women put it aside to pay for a pregnancy or whatever it is. Now, the catch being you have to have a high deductible health insurance plan in order to be able to open an HSA. So it's not available to just everyone. A lot of companies, if you have a high deductible health plan through your company, quite a few companies offer an, an HSA as a benefit. It's a really great way to be saving for future medical expenses if that's an option for you in your healthcare plan. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about like uh, some of the cautionary investments. Uh, you mentioned annuities being one of them, Bitcoin and things like that. Um, how should people approach any of you, those riskier investments? Annuities are kind of a whole different scenario because an annuity in a theory, in theory, is a great thing. The problem is sometimes what the practice is with an annuity because of the fees. You just have to really know all the ins and outs of your plan and how much you're being charged and when you can get access to your money which is true for any investment. But I think that the sales pitch on an annuity, just like on whole life insurance, the sales pitch sounds so wonderful that people tend to just sign up for it without doing the math and seeing if it's the right fit for them. So that's the thing on those. Now, something like a Bitcoin, for instance, that is a very speculative investment and in an asset class that has not yet been totally established. And when I say asset class, I look at a bundle of similar assets like stocks, bunch of different company stocks all bundled together is known as like the equities asset class or real estate or bonds. Those are well-known verified asset classes. Obviously, investing in stocks comes with levels of risk, but Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency, but I think we kind of use Bitcoin as general shorthand for cryptocurrency in general. We don't know where this is going to go. We don't know how it could get regulated in the future. There's all sorts of unknown quantities and qualities about it which means that if you're going to invest in it, it needs to be a small portion of your overall investment portfolio and not the whole thing. Because anytime that you invest in a really speculative thing, you want to make sure that it's only an amount of money that you are very comfortable losing. Because if Mm -hmm. you do lose it all, like I knew it was about three years ago, I met a young man who was 25 and had put all of his money into Bitcoin, which at the time... He was doing great, but if he didn't get out in time, he also could have recently lost a lot of money. So you just want to make sure that you're diversifying how you're investing. And that's the other part of this is if you want to invest in some money in cryptocurrency, that's totally fine if that's what you want to do. If you've researched it and you understand it, which is the other side of this, you need to understand the things you're investing in. And if you're bullish on crypto, fine, but don't put all of your money in that. Just like don't put all of your money in one stock. Mm -hmm. or one sector of the stock market. You want to make sure that money is all over the place. So if one thing starts to underperform, it doesn't tank all of your money. Uh, So speaking of kind of um, fees and whatnot and and minimizing the risk, there's the expense ratio, but that's not really the full indicator of the full expenses, right? There's other things. So uh, 
how does one even like start to understand a prospectus and is the prospectus like the only thing that they actually have to read or are there other things that could get them down the line as well? I mean, you could also just Google a particular fund or stock if that's what you want to check out and you can ask somebody at the brokerage, but a prospectus pretty much is giving you the overall view, which for those unfamiliar with the term of perspective, is kind of like a term sheet on the fund or on the stock or whatever the investment is. It has to overview the fees. It has to overview the risk. It also has to overview past performance. It's required by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, for brokerages to provide a prospectus on investments. So that should be easily available to you. You can also go to a site called Morningstar.com in order to get a lot of information about different funds, different investments, and they also rate them. So you can kind of get a little sense of what Morningstar thinks of them as well. Now, an expense ratio is certainly not the only fee that you might get, but it is one of the most important to understand because if you are paying a high expense ratio, then that is um, far fewer dollars for you to have compounding for future you. A good rule of thumb, uh, especially on an index fund or an ETF or mutual funds tend to be a little bit more expensive because they're actively managed, meaning a human is handling putting them together. Index funds and ETFs are usually more passively managed. ETFs are a bit of a hybrid, but the thing with an expense ratio is that every dollar that you spend in a fee, and not just expense ratios, any fee is a dollar less compounding for you in the future. And the rule of thumb that I like that I was given by someone I interviewed for the book was 0.5, so half a percent. If that's your expense ratio or higher, you might be paying too much. You really mm -hmm. want to be finding funds that are under half a percent in an expense ratio in order to make sure that you're really getting the best return. You also want to make sure it's a good product. But you're right. There are other fees. There's load fees. There's other sort of administration fees, all sorts of. There's asset under management fee, depending on if you've hired a professional to help manage your portfolio. So there's a lot. I'd run down a very long list of them in the book. Yeah. But it's important for sure that you understand exactly what you're paying for. And the reason it's so critical is because you want to make sure that you're getting value out of those fees. Because I'm not saying that all of them are bad. But if you're not actually getting value out of them because of how you choose to invest, then it's a problem. Now, you use the word good product. Uh, when it comes to millennials, I think that can be interpreted a number of ways. And I appreciate that you sort of tackle that in the book as far as you know, it's one thing to invest in the stock market, but it's like, okay, am I investing in something that I don't believe in? So can you talk about aligning your investing with your intrinsic goals? Yes, there is ethical investing, sustainable investing. I do think that's one of the trickiest things for any investor, but especially young investors, is that if you put your money in just a general index fund, you could be investing in casinos, you could be investing in oil companies, you could be investing in gun and weapons manufacturers or defense contracts. A lot of us don't necessarily want our money going to support these things, nor do we want to profit off of them. But if you're putting your money into, say, a total stock market index fund, that could be thousands of companies that you're having to vet to see if that's where you want to put your money. So it can take a lot of work. Now, there are other options. There are things such as SRI, which is socially responsible investing, and ESG, which is environment, governments, and sustainability. There's all these acronyms I have to try to remember. <laughs> and impact investing, I would say, is kind of the strictest version of any ethical investing where the amount of vetting that impact investing does is 
quite stringent and it looks at a variety of factors. It's very hard for your average investor to get access to the kind of vetting that companies who do impact investing get, you know, are able to access because we, the regular investor, can't pay to unlock that or can't get access to it, but they do ratings on companies. So the example that's given in the book, which was written pre-Tesla drama, was that Tesla, for instance, might get a AAA rating because of its policies in terms of not harming the environment, certain social responsibilities, where a company like a Volkswagen might get a B or a C because of the emissions crisis that they have. So that's one of the ways that companies are vetted. I think it's also just important for individuals to decide what kind of companies am I comfortable investing in? And sometimes people have religious restrictions. So there might be that you can't invest in a casino because gambling is something that you do not fundamentally believe in or is even against your faith. And so therefore you can't be in a fund that has any sort of money that's tied to a casino. There are companies that are trying to solve for this that are impact investing exclusively. My only feeling is that you really do, again, coming back to the fees, you have to evaluate, can I do well enough as an investor in, in exclusively impact investing, or does that need to be just a portion of my portfolio and I need to have some money also in other asset classes or in other types of investments? Final point on this, your voice matters if you're a shareholder of a company. Depending on the type of investment you own, you get a vote. It also is important for a certain brokerage. They want, they need customers. So if customers get together and voice a concern, that can also make a difference. I remember, it might have been a year ago, a few months ago, after yet another mass shooting in the United States, a bunch of investors at a certain brokerage got together and said to the brokerage, we're all going to leave if you do not take weapons manufacturing out of this particular index. Mm -hmm. And they did. So that's another thing to know is you have a voice, your voice has power. And if you want to be able to invest and in not exclusively impact investing, you can rally with other people to try to get change made in how your money is being invested as well. Yeah. That's that's excellent, especially in today's social media world. I think it's a lot easier to galvanize people than certainly in the past. I'm not saying it's yep. very easy, but it's certainly a lot easier. Yep. Um, going back to this notion that you're essentially self-employed, uh, I want to kind of expand that a little bit because I, a lot of creatives tend to be self-employed, uh, freelance and so forth. So what are tips for them um, that you've learned along the way that, that might be of benefit? In general or investing specifically? Uh, it could be both. could be All both. Right. One of my biggest ones that's a combo general and investing tip is you are your own retirement plan. We do not have the advantage of an employer giving us a match or encouraging us to invest. We have to set up the accounts ourselves. We have to handle everything by ourselves. There are a lot of pros and cons to being self-employed, but having to be accountant and healthcare and, uh, you know, every other possible job that gets covered with a traditional employer can feel really overwhelming. So I understand how especially retirement can kind of fall to the bottom of the to-do list a lot of times. One of my biggest pieces of recommendation on this is when you are putting money aside for taxes, your quarterly estimated taxes, you should increase the percentage that you're saving to account for retirement. I personally, and this is going to sound like a very high number, I put aside 45% of every single paycheck I receive 
into a, it's called Uncle Sam's Money. It's into a savings account specifically for my quarterly estimated taxes. Now, I live in New York City, so I have to pay federal, state, and city tax. So one, I know I have an extra tax to pay, so I want to have that extra buffer. But it also means that I have a forced amount of money that I've like forced myself to set aside that can go into a retirement account. So every time I pay quarterly estimated taxes, the remaining money can just go into a SEP IRA for myself. So that's a really easy way to be starting to get proactive about retirement. I think the other things that we have to do is figure out how to handle the mental burden of variable income. I don't know about you guys, but to me, that can be really brutal sometimes. And it really does a number on your mental health if you're not careful. One of the things I found really beneficial was to start to pay myself a salary as if I was traditionally employed. I just am employed by myself. So... I obviously have a business account that I set up, which if you haven't, you really should. You really want to separate personal and business money. So I set up a business account and all of my money goes into that account. Now, every time I get paid, 45% goes into that aforementioned taxes and retirement account. But then after that, I now have during you know great months, money is accumulating there and saving up. And during lean months, I have a buffer. And then I did the math on how much I needed to earn every month in order to have my base needs met and, you know, have some spending money, have some uh, some discretionary spend. And now I pay myself a salary. So once a month, I send that amount of money to my personal checking account and I have a salary. So usually I have a nice fat backlog of cash sitting in my business checking account because in flush months, I'm not spending like crazy. And in lean months, I'm not having to go into full deprivation mode. Well, I want to pre- I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I think this has been wonderful. Um, just a few more things, if you will. Um, let me ask you this: Would, uh, It seems like your next book's going to be, or your next subject's going to be money and relationships. Yes. But uh, so obviously, I want you to talk on that. But then also, just out of selfishness, because I think you have a wonderful job. You do a wonderful job of taking what can be complex subjects and really deducing them down to the very basics. I would love, here's a title for you to think about, Broke Millennial Takes on Healthcare. Oh, it's so hard. So that one, that and taxes, every so often I'll get a little feedback on book one that taxes aren't included. And I'm like, thank God, because I wrote that book during, Mm. like it was written before the presidential election. So Mm. I had no idea what was going to happen and what to expect. And with books like healthcare and taxes, it can be really hard to write a book because the traditional book process it takes about a year and a half to two years for a book to go from original draft to actually being on the shelf. And so much in both of those realms can change so quickly. So I think I would have to do like a big ebook that I can easily keep updating as things changed if I ever did that, because it is complicated. It is. But so is, so is, um, I, I, right. I think the term is getting financially naked with your partner. That's your term. Um, that, is also hard, but um, you've kind of touched upon it in various ways. And so uh, is that what you're going to tackle next in terms of a book? And Yes, book three is all about relationships and money. However, I'm not just focusing on romance. It's also going to be friends, family, and coworkers. So navigating the relationships at work that you have with coworkers and bosses and talking negotiation and how to disclose salary if it's appropriate and how to handle all the fun nitty gritty money conversations we have to have at work down to can you afford to go out to happy hour and what's the you know financial payoff. So it'll be kind of all over the place. Also, just because 
In any given time of your life, I would say at least two of those factors are impacting. Mm-hmm. Whether it's friends and romance, whether it's family and work, like there's always going to be some combination of the two. But there are certain times of life where one of them has no relevance. Like maybe you're not dating right now. And so romance is not an important part and how to talk to your partner about money doesn't matter. So this book will still have plenty of content for you that's important. Awesome. And you have some tour dates coming up for the book as well. Uh, do you want to speak to those? Yes. So the book officially hits shelves on April 9th, but I am going to be traveling around the country for, there could be more dates rolling out soon, but the ones that are confirmed, New York on April 10th, Atlanta on April 17th, Seattle on April 25th, Portland on April 28th, San Francisco on April 30th, and LA on May 2nd. You can find all the information about those dates as well as ones that are coming up on brokemillennial.com slash tour. Everything's there. And also Instagram, Twitter, I talk about it all the time. The thing I think is really important to know is this is not your traditional book tour. I'm not just popping up in bookstores and signing books with the exception of Portland that is at Powell's, but I'm still doing an investing presentation. So you still can learn about investing, but everything else is actually a ticketed event where you can come Your ticket gets you a copy of the book, it gets you food, it gets you drink, and also an actual education experience about investing. We'll be having a panel discussion where I interview experts and we talk all about investing for rookies and you can have a chance to ask questions as well. That's awesome. I I think that's a great way to look at it and uh, bring value. Well, fantastic. Is there any final words you want to share while you have this captive audience? I would say find me on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog. I'm very active there. I also do an AMA on Wednesday. So if you have a question that hasn't been answered during this segment, please feel free to come ask it, or you can always direct message me. It might take me a minute to respond, but I do respond to all those inbound requests. And you can find me on Twitter at Broke Millennial, where I'm also very chatty. So social media is definitely a good way to interact with me. Amazing. Well, thank you again for your time, and thank you for what you're doing and helping educate people. There you have it. That was my interview with Broke Millennial herself. She's so articulate, isn't she? I absolutely love her answers. She's so in-depth. She's so meticulous, but she also puts passion behind it. That's what I love about her. So please go check out her first book and definitely check out her second book coming out now. And I look forward to her third book where Broke Millennial takes on relationships. It's going to be fantastic, right? Um, Now, before we head off, a couple of quick reminders. Uh, I will be posting the transcript from this interview on my website. The link is provided below so you can check it out and, and see it in uh, text form, if you will, and want, kind of review that way, right? Also, uh, the number one way to support this show is just leave a, a comment, leave a rating on whatever platform you listen to, right? Speaking of which, if you haven't subscribed yet, by all means, go ahead. Uh, this show is available on so many platforms. That way, it's easiest for you to consume, right? Whether that be Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast. Uh, we, we have a video version on Facebook, YouTube, um, Vimeo, all that stuff. All the links are provided there for you so you can check it out and uh, just basically have ease of use. Also, if speaking of finances, if it doesn't burden you financially in any sort of way, I do encourage you to check out my Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash philsfeetech. Every contribution is truly appreciated and helps defray the cost of putting on the show. And I will be offering many great rewards. I'm actually going to be upping it uh, in the coming weeks. Speaking of new updates, I recently just uh, redesigned my website, philosophytech.com, 
a couple of months ago in the uh, scientific way to combat procrastination, I talked about me putting out my intentions, which was to redesign a website and create a way for uh, us to interact more directly via consulting and coaching. So I've done just that. It took me a little bit longer than I expected, but the philsweettech.com website is absolutely relaunched. It's brand new. It's got a lot of great tools for you to check out that are completely free. So by all means, check those out, including more episodes of this series. And there's also ways for us to work directly, as I said, um, should you uh, desire that. So definitely check that out. And also, speaking of which, if uh, if you happen to be in the LA area, whether you're an aspiring host or a college student, um, I encourage you to get involved with AfterBuzz TV. It's no secret, that's where I cut my teeth for the better part of uh, the, a decade, the most recent decade, pretty much. And, um, you know, they, they offer so much to aspiring hosts. They they've, uh, have nothing but hundreds and hundreds of success stories. And the same applies for college students, right? So if you're seeking an internship and you happen to be in the LA area, by all means, check them out. Uh, I've provided a link to the contact page for AfterBuzz TV down below, so easy peasy, right? Um, Anyway, I know that's a ton of information at you all at the end, especially after such an amazing episode with with, um, Aaron, aka Broke Millennial but I just wanted to get it out there. So thank you again. And I appreciate the support that you give to this show. And I hope I bring value to you, which is again, why I encourage you to comment and let me know what your thoughts are so I can better tailor these episodes towards you. Anyway, I'll see you next Wednesday with a brand new episode. Bye.